0: There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, arrived they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird morning. Some crimes have depth. There are twists and turns and motives that make you feel like you're watching a fictional movie. And then there are others that are simply just random acts of violence that have no rhyme or reason. On August 25th, 1965, a young woman was born who would go on to earn a rising spot in the Seattle punk music scene. A woman whose life was cut tragically short in a random murder by a complete stranger. So if you like your coffee hot, but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. Mia Catherine Zapata was born on August 25, 1965, in Louisville, Kentucky, to an affluent family prepared to give her anything she ever wanted in life. But from a young age, Mia only really wanted one thing, music. And not only did she show a real passion for it, but Mia also had a real aptitude when it came to all things musical, learning to play the guitar and piano by the age of nine. Mia found inspiration in all genres of music, with a particular connection to artists like Bessie Smith, Billie Holiday, Jimmy Reed, Ray Charles, Hank Williams, and Sam Cooke. Everything in her life revolved around her craft. Her father would later say, Mia lived in two different worlds. She lived on two different sides of the street, the straight side on one with parochial schools and affluent family and tennis clubs. But when she crossed the street, material things didn't mean anything to her. After a childhood spent immersed in music, Mia enrolled in Antioch College in 1984 as a liberal arts student, and two years later, she and three friends, Andrew Kessler, Stephen Moriarty, and Matt Dresner, started their punk rock band, The Gits. The band played around Ohio for a couple of years, but soon felt that they had outgrown the area. So, they simply picked up and moved to a place where they knew their genre of music was making a huge wave, a place where the music scene had become a major part of the city's architecture, Seattle, Washington. Within no time, the Gits became a sensation in the underground punk scene, especially amongst the feminist community. Mia was electric on stage, and her fiery charisma made sure that everyone in the room could trained their eyes on her and the equally talented musicians at her side. Mia was paving the way for a whole new generation of female musicians, and everyone seemed to be taking notice. While completely killing the music scene, Mia found a job at a local bar to help pay the bills in the home that she and the other members of the band lived in, an abandoned house that they called the Rat House. Shortly after their move, the Gits went on a very successful international tour, completely on their own sharing a bill with bands like Nirvana, Sublime, Beck, and Green Day, and in 1992, released their first independent album, Frenching the Bully. Of course, after seeing how well they were doing, record labels from all over were chomping at the bit to get them under contract. While enjoying the fruits of being courted, the band continued on, planning a second tour, a larger one that stretched all around the U.S. and Europe, and getting everything ready for their second album release. This one titled, Enter the Conquering Chicken. Unfortunately, all their plans would be placed on the back burner and then scrapped altogether when an act of random violence ended the Git's careers right before it skyrocketed. On the night of July 6th, 1993, Mia went out drinking with some friends at a local bar. And after a night of regaling them with stories of their latest performance in L.A., headed towards an apartment rehearsal space just a block away to see if her former boyfriend, Robert Jenkins, was still there. When she found out that he wasn't, she simply went to a friend's apartment in the same building, where she stayed until about 2 a.m. on July 7th. As she walked out of the door of the apartment, no one inside had any idea it was the last time that they would see their friend, the talented musician, and punk rock icon alive. Not much is known about what happened on Mia's walk from the building whether she walked to a taxi stand or went to find Robert at another location. What we do know is that around 3.20 a.m., a local sex worker walking near Central Area, about two miles from the bar where she spent her evening, found Mia's body abandoned on a deserted street. Emergency responders were called who worked hard to revive the young singer. But after just a few minutes, a time of death was called and Mia was brought to the morgue. There, they determined that she had been severely beaten, raped, and strangled to death with the cord of the Gitz sweatshirt that she had been wearing. The medical examiner would later say that, had she not been strangled, she would have died shortly after the attack from the internal injuries inflicted during the beating. When Mia didn't show up for the recording session later that morning, her friends started contacting everyone to find out where she was. When no one had a good answer... They started calling local police and hospitals. And when that didn't work, someone got up the courage to call the local morgue. When the medical examiner answered, he told the caller, It's your singer. I'm sorry. You should get someone to come down and identify her. He had been a fan of the local music scene and had seen the Gits perform a time or two. 27 year old Mia Zapata was buried at the historical Cave Hill Cemetery in her hometown. Of Louisville at a funeral attended by hundreds. And in the aftermath of her murder, the Seattle music community, including Nirvana, Pearl Jam, and Soundgarden, helped to raise $70,000 to hire a private investigator. She worked the case for three years, but with no fingerprints, blood, semen, or eyewitnesses, the case lacked any major breaks. Despite this and the funds completely depleting, The P.I. continued to work the case on her own time. But after five years of investigations, Seattle police detective Dale Tallman came forward and said, we are no closer to solving the case than we were right after the murder. Mia's murder struck not just the people who knew her or her music, but the city of Seattle as a whole, with many referring to the day she died as the day, quote, the Seattle scene lost its sense of invincibility it became a major reality check for a lot of people in the area, especially the feminist community, who were obsessed with Mia and her outspoken ferocity. According to writer Kristen Storm, quote, "...they were all very tough people, and as a group of women, they are all really strong, outspoken, and hard-hitting, very opinionated women, and that perception of, we're not victims at all in any way, and this can't happen to women that aren't victims," And I think Zapata's death shattered that myth for us and showed that it happens to all types of women. As the community reeled, investigators worked and the family mourned. Time passed as a layer of frost covered Mia Zapata's case, a frost that took almost a decade and some progressive science to finally thaw. In December of 2002, the first major break came in Mia's seemingly unsolvable case, when the Washington State Patrol Crime Lab on the preserved swabs of saliva from Mia's body nine years before. And for the first time in the history of the case, a name came up and a suspect was announced, Jesus Mesquia. Jesus came to the U.S. from Cuba during the 1980 Mariel boat lift and since being on U.S. soil, had racked up quite the criminal record with things like robbery, kidnapping, and aggravated battery a man who almost every woman in his life filed some sort of domestic violence report against. And upon further investigation, investigators learned that at the time of Mia's murder, the Florida fisherman had been living in Seattle. So they traveled to Miami and started surveilling Jesus, who was later detained by Florida authorities so that the Seattle ones could interrogate him about the case. Jesus, of course, denied knowing Mia Zapata, though he did acknowledge that he was living in Seattle at the time of her murder. But as police pushed him and questioned if he raped and killed the young woman, the once cooperative suspect grew completely agitated, at one point standing, extending his arms, and loudly saying, See, I'm not shaking. I tell the truth. He was charged with first-degree murder and sent back to Seattle to face trial. On March 25, 2004, after three days of deliberation, a jury found Jesus Mesquia guilty. He was sentenced to 37 years in prison, which exceeded the maximum amount, with the judge citing the, quote, particularly painful injuries Mia suffered at his hands. The following year, an appealant court overturned the sentence based on a previous Supreme Court decision. But upon resentencing, he was given just about the same sentence. Jesus Mesquilla didn't know Mia Zapata. They had no connection, and prior to the murder, had never so much as run into each other. The musician's death, quite literally, boiled down to a senseless and completely random act of violence committed by an angry man who knew he could overpower her. Though if you ask Jesus, he is an innocent man. Mia's death still resonates with those who knew her and her music. Those who knew her created a self-defense group called Home Alive, which, in addition to offering anger management and martial arts courses, organized a number of benefit concerts and albums to help raise money and awareness, in her honor. And Joan Jett recorded an album with the other members of the Gits called Evil Stig, Gits Live spelled backwards. Today, her friends and family say that they would prefer she be remembered for her music, rather than her untimely death. So, maybe when this episode is over, when you get a moment to yourself, you look up some performances or listen to some of her music and honor her in the way that she would have wanted. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to hear what terrible thing happened on August 26th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon, or just sharing it with your true crime-obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.